0: right, John chapter 11. I'll pick it up in verse 49 and read through chapter 12, verse 11. And one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he, not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation, And not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Then from that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death. Then Jesus, therefore, walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence into a country near to the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples." And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then sought they for Jesus, and spake among themselves as they stood in the temple, What think ye, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he were, he should show it, that they might take him. Chapter 12, then Jesus Six days before the Passover came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Why was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. Then said Jesus, let her alone. Against the day of my bearing hath she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you but me ye have not always. Much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also whom whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death because that by reason of him many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. And all God's children said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray Thee now that you would open up your word, that we might see Christ and the exclusivity of his work for his beloved people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, there's a lot of moving pieces to the puzzle here as we are approaching the Passover where the Lord is coming up to offer himself a sacrifice for our sin. All of the things that are taught in the Old Testament law, all of the shadows, all of the types, everything comes to fruition in the antitype, which is Christ Himself. In Hebrews chapter eight verse five, it speaks about even the priesthood um, are a shadow of things to come. In Hebrews chapter eight verse four, it says, "For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example." and shadow of heavenly things. So the very priesthood that the Lord had set up um, throughout the Old Testament was a shadow of what Christ would accomplish. Their work was to uh, typify his work. And uh, flipping the page over to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 and verse 24, again, it says something similar. This has to do with all of the artifacts that were used in in temple sacrifice and in temple Worship, And it says in verse 23 of Hebrews chapter 9, it says, It was therefore necessary that the pattern of things, that would be all these earthly shadows and types, the pattern of things in the heavens should be purified with these. That would be the blood of bulls and goats. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifice than these. For Christ has not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are uh, the figures of the true but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Chapter 10, verse 1, For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of those things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. The point of which I'm sharing this with you is that everything that we read about in the Old Testament in the law, and we had our, um, our deacon this morning read from Numbers chapter 19 in the book of Haggai, so that we would appreciate that the, um, within the Levitical uh, law was set up a means by which people would purify themselves so they could come to the Passover, so they could come to the various feasts, that the Lord had ordained to teach about himself and the work that he would um, accomplish. So we read about that in John chapter 11 here, in verse um, 55. It says, And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Now, There is so much hypocrisy in the Scriptures that it's difficult to know where to begin. And not only is it in them, it certainly is in in us, too. And we have to appreciate that, too, that these people are not uh, distinctive from the rest of the population. It's just that we see the hypocrisy that is set before them because God gave them the law, and the purpose of the law is to reveal that man is a sinner. So he has set up these ordinances by which they would purify themselves, but they're required to purify themselves before the Passover The process begins seven days prior, which is why we have this little note here in verse one of chapter 12, where it says, then Jesus, six days before the Passover came up. Well, he's not unclean. He doesn't need to go up early and be cleansed like these people do. Now, we know that they all appreciate the need to be clean because we read in in, um, Numbers 19 that if they don't clean themselves, then they are essentially excommunicated from the congregation. Um, they are excommunicated also if they fail to come to the Passover. And there's a provision made that if they can't make the Passover because they're unclean, or if they're away on a long journey, that they would celebrate it in the second month, exactly according to the procedure that was to be followed in the first month. So God has made a way for them to, um, to deal with this. Now, I mentioned to you that the um, the high priests appreciate what is required of them, because we know that in the Gospel of John, that when they're um, talking to Pilate about Jesus, in the context of they want Pilate to kill him, um, they can't go into the judgment hall lest they be defiled. <laughs> so here they are in their hearts. They're contriving murder. They're engaged in conspiracy to kill Jesus because of envy. Uh, we know that they hated him without a cause, and they don't want to defile themselves by actually going into the judgment hall. So I'm sharing with us here how evil their hearts are with respect to um, this idea of what uh, is required for purification, because purification is, according to the law, is an external thing. And the, um, Saul, uh, Paul uh, talks about that with respect to himself, how that outwardly he was clean, outwardly he was keeping the law, but inwardly, of course, he knew that, that he was a sinner. And so even with these people here, they go up early to purify themselves before the Passover, and then we read in verse 56 and 57 that they're looking to see if Jesus is going to be there, and why are they looking to see if Jesus is going to be there? Well, it says because the scribes and the, um, excuse me, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he was, they should show it that they might take him. So here they are, they're going up uh, to purify themselves. So we have this outward sense of uh, self-righteousness. But meanwhile, they have their eyes on the lookout for Jesus so that they can turn him over to um, the Pharisees and the chief priests who will then take him and, and murder him. And that, of course, helps us to appreciate the evil nature of men, how how awful our hearts are and how ignorant we are of the nature of our own sin, the depth of our own depravity. We don't know that. And God has made a provision for that again in the Old Testament. We have uh, sacrifices that are to be made for sins that we're aware of. And then if we sin ignorantly, there's another sacrifice for that. So I think we can appreciate that Christ dealt with all of those things. So here we have the... Um, the um, Individuals, the uh, um, people going up there to uh, cleanse themselves, and again, this has to be this process begins seven days prior to that. Now, if you were um, read carefully with our deacon when he went through Numbers nineteen, you should appreciate some of the things that were set before us there, some of the things that were taught before us there. Everything in there obviously points to Christ, and so I want us to appreciate that Jesus is coming up. Um, he has come up from the area of Jericho by the Jordan River and he has come up and he spent the night at uh, Bethany and he's having supper there with Mary, uh, Martha and um, Lazarus and there are other people there and it should be noted that they are at Simon the leper's house Um, so he's up there and he knows why he's there and he knows what he's going to do. He has known from day one why he was manifest in the flesh, why he stepped out of his glory, why he did all of these things voluntarily, because he was going to deal with the issue of sin. And indeed, in the beginning of the Gospel of John, um, John points to Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. So Jesus knows what is coming his way, he knows the law. I've forgotten how many times that he has said that he has been sent by the Father and he has tried to impress that truth upon all of these people here, that he has been sent by the Father. He's there to do his Father's will. And it's his Father's will that he redeem a people unto himself. So he is familiar with um, Numbers chapter 19 and all that is required there. And he's also uh, appreciative, having written the law, that everything in there points to him. He is the red heifer that is going to be slain and that is going to be burnt. Um, the priests represent him, and I hope you can appreciate that when he read through this here, that every single individual that had something to do with the process of making the cleansing agent, they themselves became unclean. And so we should appreciate the uh, nature of soap, how that soap binds with certain um, things that are have attached themselves to our bodies, and they re, then they bind to that soap, and the soap rinses them away. So there's this picture of an, the imputation of sin from the individual who's being made clean in this process and the individuals that are part of the process to make somebody else clean. I hope that makes sense to you. Our sins were imputed to Christ. We are cleansed, and we are washed in his blood. And so all of these things, each individual that partook in this process represents Christ and the work of Christ in that, that process. All of the ingredients uh, are represented by um, Christ as well here. You get down to verse 6 there, and it talks about how uh, what things would be thrown into the, um, into the fire uh, where the um, red heifer is burnt. And you can see an item there. I'm just picking up choosing a few things here because I think they would be more salient to what we're talking about today. Um, It talks about scarlet being cast into the midst of the burning of the heifer. Well, what is scarlet there? Well, it has to do with a worm that was used um, in the process of dying, and it was a uh, worm that was used to dye the Lord's garment. Remember that they put a scarlet garment on him when they were um, scourging him and parading him before the people. Well, that um, worm when it's prepared to lay its eggs, fixes itself to a piece of wood. You can think of the cross. It fixes itself to a piece of wood, lays its eggs, and then dies over the top of the eggs to protect them. And then in that process, her body turns a crimson red, and then they take those, those worms, and then they extract the dye from that to dye garments. And so when we read in the New Testament about the Lord having a scarlet garment, also in the book of Revelation, and about his, he wore a vesture dipped in blood, we should appreciate that this uh, scarlet worm represents Christ uh, through the process of his death, of course, then we were cleansed with, um, with his blood. So uh, we see that in there, all of these things are representing Christ. And Christ says of himself in Psalm 22:6, 6, he says, I am a worm and no man. He identifies himself as the worm, so this is not a leap uh, of any... Um, that's not rooted in Scripture because he identifies himself as a worm. And so we should appreciate that that's used to, that's part of the cleansing agent uh, to make somebody um, ceremonially clean. Now, our uh, deacon also read for us in the book of Haggai. And you'll notice when you read through it, actually it's still in Numbers 19, that he, as he goes through this process here, and in verse 22 when he sums it up, he says, Whosoever the unclean person toucheth shall be unclean, and the soul that touches it Shall be unclean until evening. Then, when he went over and read in Haggai um, chapter 2, verse 11, the Lord is speaking about what the priests are offering and what people are bringing for an offering in the context of that everything you touch, you make unclean. If you touch something that object is unclean and then if somebody else touches that object they are unclean as well. And so in verse 14 of Haggai chapter 2 he says, Then said Haggai and said, "So is then answered Haggai and said, so is this people and so is this nation before me, saith the Lord, and so is every work of their hands and that which they offer there is unclean." So I came out this morning out to this room here, and I used the doorknob to get in, and the Bible says, "I'm unclean. All my works of righteousness are unclean, are filthy rags, uh, and I am unclean." So I touched the doorknob, so everybody that came in here that if you touch that doorknob, you are unclean, too. So I hope we can appreciate the contagious nature of sin and this idea of uncleanliness. You know, People think COVID is contagious, not like sin is. Sin permeates every aspect of our life. Every aspect of this planet, which, of course, is why it's doomed for destruction. So we have this set before us here. Christ comes up six days before the Passover. These people have gone through this ceremonial process whereby they think they have made themselves clean. And specifically in Numbers 19, it talks about if you touch a dead man or you walk across a grave, And we don't see these indictments here in in the Gospel of John, but over in in, uh, Matthew chapter 23 in particular, the Lord speaks of the scribes and the Pharisees as uh, sepulchers. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like unto whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but within are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So he's telling us that the scribes and the Pharisees they're dead men. They themselves are graves. Uh, um, they themselves are graves within our dead men's bones. So we should appreciate that ever since um, Genesis chapter 3, that men are dead. We're basically all, in the spiritual context, we're, we're stillborn. We are all dead in trespasses and sins. But in addition to that, the body is dead. We live in a, in a body of flesh and blood. And the Lord says that flesh and blood shall not inherit the eternal kingdom. It's got to be a glorified body. Um, and so we're all dead. We're all unclean and we're all dead. And so we need to be cleansed, not through that process, but the process by which the Lord will achieve when he goes to the cross and sheds his blood. And scripture says that we are washed in the blood of Jesus. And that is what is going to make us clean. So we have this scene set up where the Lord, again, he comes and he's, he's dining with um, supping with Mary, uh, Martha and Lazarus and other people um, are there. They have prepared a meal for Christ Uh, not for Lazarus. And in the background is all of this conspiracy taking place by all of these evil people whose hearts are determined um, to kill Christ. As the Gospel of John continues, we're going to see this division grow greater and greater between those that are antagonistic towards Christ and those that love him, or those, I should say, whom he loves. In the Gospel of John in particular, we see this wonderful intimacy growing as he gets closer to the cross. We see it here where he's supping with them six days before the Passover. Um, in five days, Christ is going to be on the cross. Uh, the Passover technically is on the 15th. I know it says the 14th, but that means that you slay the um, Passover lamb on the 14th. So he's he's five days from... Uh, Um, actually being slain the Lord's Passover the Lord passed over in that that following night so he knows where he's going he's got five days to live five days to enjoy the company of these people and for them to enjoy his company and so he is supping with them we know we're going to go from here where he's going to wash their feet we're going to see that wonderful high priestly prayer in John 17 so this intimacy um, grows as the Lord gets closer and closer to um, the cross so I want us to appreciate here that, of course, the Christ is going to be the red heifer. He's going to be all of the objects by which people are made clean, and he's going to clean his people, and they shall be clean, and then they can enter into the congregation, which would be the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly congregation. Um, now, there's also another subtlety that takes place here too, which I appreciate more so this week than, let's say, another week, because this Thursday was the Day of Atonement for our Jewish neighbors. It was Yom Kippur. Now, recall when Lazarus came forth from the tomb that he was encumbered about himself with grave clothes. And that's an interesting detail that the Lord would share with us here. But what we should appreciate is that um, we need to appreciate that in the context of Jesus being the high priest. So the, um, he has people roll open the tomb And then he calls forth Lazarus from the grave. And you'll recall last week I said that he has us enter into his ministry, enter into the preaching of the gospel. He did not need anybody to roll the gravestone away, but he had them do it anyway. When it came time for Jesus' tomb to be opened, he did not have men open the gravestone, but there was an earthquake and he had angels open it. So God can work everything out according to his own administration, which he does when it comes time for him to come out of the grave. But he did not need the graves. He didn't need it open to get out. It was open so we could see in and appreciate that he had, in fact, been raised from the dead. We know that he walks through walls in the upper room. All the doors are locked, and he appears there. So he certainly did need somebody to open the door for him to leave the gravestone. He's the door. Um, Now, where am I going with this? has to do with the Day of Atonement. When you go to John chapter 20... And the Lord has put this contrast in here with, again, Lazarus coming out of the tomb. He's encumbered with a grave clothes, And the Lord even says to take the... Um, his face was bound with a napkin. And Jesus says, loose him and let him go. And yet when we find that when the, um, the women come to the tomb in which the Lord was laid, when they go in there, they find something very peculiar down in, in verse 5 of John chapter 20. And he's stooping down... Looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulchre and seeing the linen clothes lie. And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. The Lord's very neat about himself. When he rose from the dead, he folded his clothes and he left them in there. Now, why would he do that? Why would, why would the Lord share that detail with us? Well back in Leviticus um, chapter 16 on the Day of Atonement. And this detail here is placed before us here, so we would appreciate what the Lord would wear when he went into the tomb, what the high priest would wear when the high priest um, did uh, perform the um, atonement for the uh, people of Israel. In verse chapter 16, in verse 4, it speaks about his clothing and about the priest. It says, he shall put on the holy linen coat so he's to wear linen and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh and he shall be girded with a linen girdle and with the linen miter shall he be attired these are the holy garments therefore he shall wash his flesh in water and so put them on well what was the lord buried in In linen garments all right well what is the priest supposed to do when he's finished making an atonement for the people that's verse 23 And Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of the congregation and shall put off the linen garments, which he put on when he went into the holy place, and he shall leave them there. And so the Lord is our high priest, and he did everything in accordance with the law. The priest was to take off his holy garments and leave them there. Christ, when he had completed the atonement for um, Israel, I'm speaking of the Israel of God, he took off his linen garments and he left them there. So we can appreciate here because it is Caiaphas himself, who is high priest, who uh, talks about the atonement. In verses 49 and 50 of John chapter 11, there he's speaking about how one person should die for um, the benefit of, of the people. And that's exactly what takes place on the day of atonement. Once a sacrifice and offering is made for the high priest, which of course the Lord did not have to do for himself because in him was no sin, he did no sin. Um, but the high priest then would place his hands on the head of a goat, confess the sins of the nation, and that one goat would go out to the, um, into the wilderness, would be led out into the wilderness, which, of course, is what happened to Christ. He was set outside the camp, sins being imputed to him, and that's symbolized by the crown of thorns that were upon his head. We know that thorns represent sin from Genesis chapter 3. Um, so uh, Christ had... His, our sins placed upon him, and then he went outside of the congregation, outside of the camp where he was slain. So Caiaphas is bringing this issue up about, uh, as high priest, that Jesus should die for that nation, meaning the nation of spiritual Israel. So these things, again, are set before us here, and all these moving pieces, like I said, are starting to, come, starting to coalesce, starting to come together as the Lord gets closer to um, the cross. Caiaphas himself is very ignorant of what he has just said, because he doesn't understand uh, what Christ will do. Now, I say that in two contexts, because he's made an ignorant statement there, and it requires the Holy Ghost to give us the truth about what is spoken here. In verse 52, the Holy Ghost is telling us what that means. But Caiaphas, like the high priests, were of the sect of the Sadducees, And that is so interesting because the Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. They do not believe in angels. They do not believe in the resurrection. So what is the point of making a sacrifice for sin if you don't believe there's going to be a resurrection? Obviously, these men are serving in utter hypocrisy, which is why the Lord can say that in Matthew 23. Hypocrites. He says that a number of times. They are absolute and utter hypocrites because they do not believe in the resurrection. So... What are you doing as a high priest? What are you making atonement for? What is, for whose benefit is that? What is the purpose of that, that whole thing? So we have a problem with the high priest and Lazarus because Lazarus, Lazarus is proof that there is in fact a resurrection because Jesus has just called them back from the grave teaching that Jesus himself is the resurrection and the life. So down in verse 10 of chapter 12, we've got a problem here. The chief priests are gonna to have to kill Lazarus um, for two reasons. One is because he, by virtue of his resurrection, it is drawing people to Christ. And verse 11 there of chapter 12, it says, because by reason of him, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. And the grammatical construct of that word, believe there, means it's a continuous belief. So they're actually believing in Christ to the point of salvation. Um, so they've got a problem here. Not only are people turning to Christ and away from them, but... They don't believe in the resurrection, which would complete, and to have Lazarus come back from the dead completely undermines their authority. It completely undermines what they are, whatever they are teaching. Um, it just completely undermines them um, in their office, certainly. So again, all of these moving pieces, everything is coming together here in a way that is not good for them as a nation. So here we are in chapter twelve, verse one. Jesus, six days before the Passover, he comes to Bethany where Lazarus, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead, and they made him, meaning they made Christ a supper. And we can appreciate that Martha serves, and Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Now, it's interesting to note that they're having the dinner at Simon the leper's house. I think that's very interesting. Who would go to a leper's house if they thought he was a leper? Obviously, Simon was an individual that the Lord had cured of his leprosy, and he was fully cured and not contagious. And so the people that would go there would appreciate the efficacy of Christ, who is our great physician, his work. But obviously, the work that the Lord did in in Simon's life is greatly eclipsed by what he did for Lazarus, because it says they're, they're going there to see Lazarus. So I find some humor in that, that they have another notable miracle, is Simon, who's helping prepare the food and is helping serve at the table. Um, And he himself was a leper. And so it is with Christ. You know, when we read about uh, Haggai and uh, Numbers 19, there is the exception to that rule about anything you touch makes, uh, you make it unclean and anything that is unclean that touches you becomes unclean. That does not apply to Christ. We know that when people um, touched him, they were all made clean they were made uh, well. He's the great physician. There was nobody in the presence of Christ that came to him for healing that went away not completely healed. Um, he had raised by this point. He had raised three people from the dead and was going to raise himself from the dead. We know that he is um, in him is life and he is the light of men. So he's here at the table. Everybody is well and in, including Lazarus is alive from the alive from the dead. Now we read here um, that. Mary took a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of her ointment. Now, that's a very interesting thing uh, for her to do, and uh, we can appreciate from Scripture that it says that that was essentially a year's work of work for a laboring man to um, save up for himself. That was a very expensive uh, gift for um, Mary to bestow on the Lord in this way. And that teaches us a couple of things about how we really should labor for the glory of the Lord. That's a great deal of of money for her to spend on him. And uh, Judas points out how much it is. It says in verse 5, Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? We know that after he makes that statement um, in uh, Matthew 27, verse 3 that the other disciples begin to uh, carry on a little bit as well. Actually, I think it's Matthew 26, 8 is my cross-reference here. It says, But when his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, To what purpose was this waste? For this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. Um, the point I want us to draw from that is um, Judas was the one who planted this seed of discontent and criticism towards uh, Mary's gift for the Lord. And so we want to be careful about that. It does say in 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty-three that evil communications corrupt good manners. So we want to be careful that we don't say or do things that help drag down the other saints, um, which is what uh, Judas did there. Um, the Lord comes down, down there further. It says in verse 7 that the Lord says, Let her alone against the day of my bearing hath she kept this. I wonder if Mary knew when she was saving up her money to buy that spikenard, how she was, what she was going to do with it. The Lord prepares us to do things long before we're believers um, to his glory. And when you think of uh, Jacob's life in particular, how the Lord worked with his life, how the Lord moved him in the ways that he did, um, and including those times before he was a believer, um, we should appreciate that the Lord has been working in all of our lives from, well, from the womb outward until such time, uh, it continues to work in us, but we were unaware of it until such time as we became a believer. And then I find myself, I'm still unaware of the things that the Lord is doing in me um, and how that will bear uh, bear fruit out at some point in the uh, future. In Ephesians 2.10, we know that it says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So for some time, she's been saving up money to purchase this spikenard. And again, that was a year's wages of a laboring man to purchase such a thing. And she has put it in a box of um, alabaster box, which is a soft stone. And the other uh, Gospels tell us that she broke that stone and that released the fragrance. She put it in her hair. She anointed both his head and the other Gospels and she anointed his feet with her hair. And it says here, that the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. So I want us to appreciate this in the context of it's an incredible act of worship that she has just done. And the fragrance of that worship fills not only the house with what she has done, but her whole being. It's in her hair. And in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 10, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it talks about in verse 10 about uh, how a woman ought to have power over her head because of the angels. And what is the power over this woman's head? It's symbolized by a woman's hair. And this whole section here, of 1 Corinthians 11, talks about how basically a woman should have long hair. It's natural for a woman to have long hair, and that's indicative of her having authority over her. In this case, we see that um, Mary obviously represents the church, which is the bride of Christ, and her, her glory is her hair, and um, Christ is her head. Christ the man is her head because the, um, the uh, glory of the man is the woman, the glory of uh, God is man, and the glory of man is the woman. So we see this, this relationship here. Um, in verse 15 it says, But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory unto her, for her hair is given her for a covering. So we see that Mary is completely humbling herself, placing that which is a glory unto her at the feet of Jesus. And that fragrance goes out um, into the house and into, in herself as well. So her whole, um, her whole being has the fragrance um, of the Lord um, about herself. Um, in Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 14, it speaks here. Well, I've, it's, maybe it's 12... Yes, while the king sitteth at his table, my spikenard sendeth forth the smell thereof. So there's a prophecy in Song of Solomon speaking about the fragments of the king coming forth from the table and, and filling um, the room. I was going to make another point with that. The box was broken. Uh, The fact that the box is broken is indicative about the the Lord's body being broken for us, and it was in that process by which his body was broken that the fragrance was uh, released that we can all profit from. You're going to see a a parallel to that with respect to um, the Lord coming from the Mount of Olives and himself being pressed, as it were. Uh, Gethsemane means olive press, and so when the olive is pressed, it releases the olive oil, which uh, typifies the Holy Ghost and then that goes out to all of his people and that's the source used to light the lights in the, um, in the temple. So this process by which the Lord is going to be broken and this fragrance is going to be least released is here that we might appreciate how it will fill the entire house, the, the heavenly tabernacle and it is something that will be upon us um, as well here. So as we continue here, one of the things I want us to appreciate is what the Lord is doing five days before he's going to go to the cross. He knows he's going to the cross. They don't appreciate and understand it. He's told it to them time and time again of what's going to happen. He's going to go up to Jerusalem. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be killed. He's going to go be crucified. And then he's going to be raised three days later. And they don't understand it. They don't understand it until they go to the uh, empty tomb and the angels tell them, hey, did he not say to you that this would happen? And the answer is yes, he did say to it. He did say that to them. So the question I have for everybody here is here we have Jesus. He's going to Bethany, and he's spending time with these people that he loves here. He's got five days to the cross, a brutal death, five days to live. Um, They don't know it, but he, he does know it. He's known it all since he was born. So the question is, how would you spend your time if that was you? What would you be doing if you had five days before you were going to be nailed to a cross? Would you be plotting an escape? I mean, instead of going to Jerusalem, would you be going the other way? Would you be living it up? You know, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Um, what would you be doing? And that idea is set before us in a couple places in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 15 32, it says, What advantage it, it me if the dead rise not? If there is no resurrection, you're thinking like a Sadducee. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So what does Jesus do? We know when he gets to the garden and in the Gospel of John here, they're going to ask, he's going to ask them, whom seek ye? And they're going to tell him. They don't know who he is. They wouldn't ask that question and there wouldn't be an exchange there if they knew that he was Jesus of Nazareth. Um, And he answers it. Yeah, I am. He obviously is not going to um, not go to the cross. So how does he spend his time here? He spends his time with his beloved people, reassuring them and comforting them that all is going to be well. And that question is put before us as well. How should we spend our time? You know, in Psalm 39, 4, it says, Lord, make me to know mine end and the measure of my days, what it is that I may know how frail I am, and then Psalm ninety twelve, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. So where should we be pouring our energies? How we should we be spending our time that it would bring glory to God? God has our days numbered, but I don't know what that number is. I'm, mid, you know, three o'clock this afternoon. I might be, um, I might be dead. We don't know. We take every breath by God's grace and. Um, he is sovereign over all things, the life and death over all people. We know that's in Hannah's prayer. He brings he to the grave and he brings out of the grave. Um, so we need to think about how we want to spend our time, uh, what our attitudes need to be towards the unregenerate that are around us and how we want to uh, minister to them, how we want to interact with them, and certainly those, of course, in the church, how we want to love them. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 through 13, He's telling us here, you know, there's going to come a time when God pulls the plug on this. He says, "But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up." Verse 11. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. So the Lord is helping us to appreciate there the brevity and the vanity of life. God's going to burn this whole place up. So where ought we to spend our time Um, And how ought we to spend our time in holy conversation and godliness? And so we need to consider that. Are we doing that? Um, Are we getting caught up in this world and frustrated with it like I am? Or are we thinking our our thoughts heavenly? Are we praying for people like the governor and the president? Are we praying for our neighbors? Are we uh, trying to um, preach Wisdom, teach wisdom to these people that don't understand the brevity of life and how God's going to um, destroy this planet and how all re- everything we see is uh, temporal. Uh, everything visible is temporal and the visible, invisible things are eternal. And so people lack that perspective. They're running around spending their time uh, working very hard to keep their head above uh, you know, the um, water financially speaking and they are losing sight of what's really important. Um, There's a church that has a sign up on El Camino. I think it says something that life is short. Eternity is forever. And so people need to have an eternal perspective. And I don't think people do. Um, They're too caught up in uh, what's in front of their their noses. So we see here in, in John 11, the Lord comes up and he's spending what limited time he has left. He's spending it in a loving way with his beloved people. He is reassuring them and comforting them. And they are serving him. And they are uh, worshiping him. And they are enjoying his company. And that's what we should do as well. In verse 2 there, it talks about uh, Martha serving. We see Lazarus is sitting at the table with the Lord. And we see Martha in verse 3 worshiping. And so those are activities that we should be engaged in. We should be serving the Lord, his people. Whatsoever you do to the least of these, my children, you do unto me. So we should be serving each other. And we should be loving each other. And we should be um, worshiping the Lord and spending time with him in prayer and time with him in fellowship Um, because our days are numbered here in which case we'll be with him forever without the encumbrance of the flesh and I certainly look forward to that so with that I'll say amen. amen